This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 9th, 2021, the Ghislaine edition. I've already mispronounced it on my previous take, Ghislaine. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and a professor at Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. (laughs) Hello. I'm laughing because we just discussed how I am not a professor at Yale Law School. I am merely a lecturer, and that is a very important distinction. And so David is, I don't know. Maybe he's libeling Yale Law School in the process of. I think that's a praise for Yale Law School to think that they could have someone like you Uh, professing. mm. My goodness, Uh, Mm. John Dickerson of CBS is somewhere else. I don't know where. It's okay. We have Gabfest stalwart David Leonhardt, who is the author of the morning newsletter at the New York Times. Hello, David. You're in DC too, right? Yes, I am. Hello, David and Emily. It is great to be back on the Gabfest. We are so glad you're here. This week, we will talk about the pandemic economy. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it just weird? How to make sense of it? Then, the kind of semi-boycott of the Winter Olympics. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it just weird? We'll talk about that, too. Then, the Ghislaine-Maxwell trial and the Jeffrey Epstein case. And what does that uh, mean and how to think about it and... How do we understand whether or not she is a criminal? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. The pandemic economy continues to be very weird. Unemployment is dropping fast. It's down to only 4.2% this month. It's dropped more than 2.5% points over the past six months or so, which is a very rapid drop. And at the same time, workforce participation is also down, suggesting that a lot of people Mostly, probably elderly people have stopped working during the pandemic entirely and stopped looking for work. Americans have banked record amounts of savings during the pandemic because of the emergency government relief. But on the other hand, poor and middle class families are seeing those savings dwindle. Inflation is surging, but it's very disparate in its impact. And then there is the partisan color to all of this economic issue, all these economic issues and economic sentiment because Republicans feel much more negatively about the economy than Democrats do. So, David Leonhardt, what is the data or trend that you find most interesting or confounding in this uh, complicated pandemic economy we're living in? I think this is one of those cases where the perception and the reality are actually pretty well correlated, and it's the statistics that are confusing people. And so you have um, economists and journalists saying, how is it that people could be so grouchy when the economy is so good? And I think the answer is really simple, which is the economy is not actually good. People's finances are good. And basically, people who want work can find it. And those are big things. But that's not the full economy. I mean, inflation is a really big deal. Having to go wait uh, in line everywhere longer than you used to have to wait, that's part of the economy. Having schools that are not normal in any way, like 
people have to rearrange their lives around bus schedules that are different. People have to rearrange their lives at, around the fact that um, sometimes school just gets canceled. These are all basically parts of the economy. And so I'm not at all surprised that when you ask people, how do you feel about how things are going? They say, I feel stinky um, because basically things aren't working very well in this country. And we sort of haven't figured out for both good reasons and I think less good reasons. We haven't figured out how to live with COVID and we are still allowing it to dominate our lives in ways that make the day to day experience of living in this economy pretty unpleasant. So, so this is a case you're saying where the data we rely on data as a measure of health and happiness and prosperity. And in fact, data in this case, that lived experience is more important than data. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm, you both know me. I'm a sufficiently, uh, I'm a sufficient evangelist for data that I would say that. I know. What are you trying to tempt David Leonhardt <laughs> into here? Like betraying the ethos of his entire career? I'm not. I'm, or I'm at not least in. not deliberately. <laughs> data is worthless. I, I think we're focusing maybe on the wrong data. In some cases, the data doesn't really exist. Like, is there data on how long it takes you to go shopping? Um, if there were, uh, I think that data would look pretty ugly. Um, is there data on how many working class people have to miss a shift because um, their kid's school bus didn't come or got moved? Uh, I don't think there necessarily is. Um, uh, and so I think we are focusing on the unemployment rate, which is a real thing, but those are not the only ways in which people experience the economy. Are you both surprised by the rise in inflation? I mean, I uh, confess to have been tempted into a view preceding this rise in inflation that maybe inflation wasn't really a thing we had to worry about anymore, that, you know, we had sort of corrected for it in some semi-permanent way and that um, supply and demand were going to remain kind of in sync and we just weren't going to have to fret about inflation very much. And I... I understand why particularly the supply chain problems because of COVID have helped change that picture, but I'm surprised by how much of an issue it is. And maybe the, I just wonder if that is because I'm naive or whether it's taking other people by surprise too. I, I'm not I'm not at all surprised by inflation in the sense that the supply chain issues, which struck us 18 months ago, seemed so profound and so complicated and so much of our economy was dependent on a supply chain that worked in a particular way and it, we haven't really resorted it yet. And so it does make sense that, that if a supply chain is totally disrupted, then the goods won't arrive and yet there will still be demand and expectation for those goods. And also that people's, what kind of goods people want will have changed radically. And so the demand for certain goods will spike, which also would drive inflation. So it makes, it makes total sense. I think what's surprising to me is that it's taking so long to work it out that this global supply chain, which was this miracle, and you would think, oh, well, these people are going to adjust really quickly. Factories are going to change. There are going to be new factories. It turns out that a lot of things just don't get quickly resolved. And so I wonder you know, if this, and David Leonhardt, you have a much better sense of this than I'm sure either Emily or I, whether it, the, these supply chain issues and the inflation that flows from them are likely to persist for years or months Years would seem surprising, but I, but I have been surprised so far. I, David, I agree with you. When you look at why it's happened, it completely makes sense. It's not, it's not one of these things where you say, whoa, why is this happening? But I also, Emily, to your question, I didn't expect this. Um, and um, we have basically had 20 years in which all of the warnings of inflation have been proven wrong. 
just wrong and wrong and wrong again. Um, uh, I once debated Ron Paul, the former congressman on Stephen Colbert's old show about whether inflation was going to be a problem or not. And, and I pointed out that people like him have been warning about it for years and years and years and just been wrong, wrong, wrong. Given that, and given that if anything, we've done the opposite, we hadn't let the economy get strong enough, I assumed the bigger risk this time was the same thing, not getting it strong enough, not getting the economy strong enough. And that was wrong. Uh, they got it. They got it too wrong. A few economists warned about that. Uh, Jason Furman warned that that, that that was a risk. Olivier Blanchard warned that it was a risk. And so a n- number of people did warn about it. I, I think in retrospect, I'm kicking myself a little bit for not focusing more on that risk because I wrote some things saying, why is it that we're sending all this pandemic money to people who don't actually need it? I mean, we sent all these checks to people who didn't lose their jobs, who didn't, who, if anything, their expenses went down because we all just kind of cocooned in our houses and the government kept sending them checks. And I write, wrote pieces saying, you know, we really should be much more focused on the people who've actually lost their jobs rather than just cutting a check to absolutely everyone. In retrospect, that's exactly one of the reasons why we have inflation now, which is we cut a check to everyone. And not only that, but everyone cut back on vacations and services. And so people have huge amounts of money. They're focusing it on goods rather than services. And we have inflation and supply chain problems. Emily, one of the things that really struck me looking at this this week was there has been this, as David was just talking about, this huge uh, pouring of cash, mostly government cash, into everyone's bank account. So there was uh, $2.3 trillion is the number that's sticking in my head, is the amount of extra savings that Americans compiled during, during the pandemic because of declining spending on some things, but mostly because the government is giving, writing them huge checks. But it was, and everyone benefited, and the poor and middle class, poor and lower middle class people disproportionately benefited in the sense that their savings as a percentage increased vastly more than somebody in the top part of the economy. But when you look at the actual dollar figures that that represented, it wasn't much. It was that someone who was very poor, who maybe had $300 in savings, suddenly had $700 in savings, which is great. It's fantastic. They have a, you know, $700 in savings, but $700 in savings does not pay for uh, a a full car repair. It doesn't pay for a uh, kid going to college at all. And now those people are getting squeezed. And I feel like this is one of these things where the happiness is going to dissipate really quickly as those people who have those extra savings are really going to spend it down and are going to be back where they were. Right. I was thinking before when David Leonhardt was talking about the concept of precarity and that even if you have a little more, if you think that it's about to trickle away, it doesn't really make you feel better, especially in a world that's disrupted in all the ways you were talking about. And I'm really glad that you highlighted the way in which school is uh, affecting, I think, family life. So, Right. $2.3 trillion sounds like a huge total. But when you break it up into all the individual pieces, it's small and it's not sustained. And I worry that it's going to feel like this sort of um, sugar high. And when it dissipates, it's not going to really leave very much in its wake that is good that people feel like they take with them, much less that's like really transforming people's lives. And that's really a problem. Um, and it also makes me doubt on a greater level this whole idea that the only way that you govern and make reform is by spending a lot of money. Even if you're all for wealth d- redistribution, if you're not changing the structure of the system, then you're not providing a sustainable path to really transform people's lives. I think that's a really important point. If you look back at 
the the FDR years. Yes, there was a, a huge amount of Keynesianism. In the end, he sort of couldn't decide whether he's a Keynesian, but then he realized that it worked, and so he was. But it also was exactly what Emily was saying isn't happening now, which was it was a restructuring of the American economy in which labor unions get strengthened, in which we create the SEC and all kinds of other things like Social Security. And I don't really see that now. And so all the forces that have caused incomes to grow very slowly for most Americans really still seem to be there. So we've sent a lot of cash out and that has some real pluses but it does feel highly temporary. And a lot of the forces that have caused inequality to soar, I don't think that the the policy response so far has done all that much to counteract. Can I dig into that for a second? Because I'm wondering what you think about the fact that, so, so there are a bunch of countervailing or there are a bunch of pressures on the U.S. economy. There are, very, there are fewer immigrants coming in and immigrants often take lower wage jobs. There is this disruption in the low-wage service sector where people are like, screw it, I'm not going to do this. And there was government funding that allowed people to say screw it to certain jobs and not take it or move into different, slightly less lower-wage jobs, which may, might be better or more or more have better working conditions. Do you think that there's, even though there's been no intentional restructuring of of the U.S. economy, there certainly has not been a kind of massive enhancement of union power or anything like that, that some of these other pressures namely that the ability of workers to find jobs because the economy, there's a demand for labor and the absence of immigrants coming in to fill some of the jobs that, that at the lower wage end uh, has, will cause some of that change. In fact, you know, or, and the presence of an Amazon paying a higher wage is driving up wages in general across those, those low wage, uh, those low wage industries. Is there any possibility of that? Yes, I think that's an important point. And there is a possibility of that. To me, it's not the most likely scenario, but it is. It, there is a real possibility that something like that could happen. And that's what it would look like. Basically, we get the economy sufficiently juiced that there is a lot of demand for workers. Not only that, but a whole bunch of people, because the pandemic interrupted the status quo, looked at their job and said, no, thank you. Like that, I just wasn't making enough money and I, my job was unpleasant. And I'm going to figure out a way to make ends meet otherwise. Maybe my spouse is working or or something like that. Um, and then immigration plays a role too. I mean, modern, modern day progressives sometimes like to pretend there's no trade-off between immigration and the wages of, of American workers who are already here. But historically, progressives were well aware there was a trade-off. It's why you often saw skepticism about immigration from civil rights leaders, from unions. Uh, and so if we have less immigration, that will help the bargaining power of lower wage workers who are already in this country. You could imagine a scenario where all those things come together and basically the demand for labor for some number of years is greater than the supply, or at least the relationship has changed. And we do have full employment and basically have pretty healthy wage growth at the bottom. That is absolutely plausible because all of these other things haven't changed. Companies are so huge. Um, uh, unions have shrunk. Educational attainment has stagnated. I'm a little skeptical that that's the most likely scenario, but the, but the Platzian optimistic scenario is a real one. 
I am skeptical for the structural reasons that you raise, and I'm feeling influenced this morning by uh, this really good, I thought, essay in the Times Opinion section by Corey Robin, who's a political science professor at Brooklyn College and CUNY and wrote a really interesting book about Clarence Thomas. So I was paying attention to this essay, and he brought in another political scientist, Stephen Skoranek, who I feel like we've talked about him on the show before. He has this theory of kind of periods of American history that ebb and flow, that stretch beyond presidencies, and that each president is either sort of continuing with this period or reconstructing it. And he is not sure what will happen, where Biden's role will fall out, because you can't know in the middle of it, but pessimistic that Biden is going to have a kind of FDR-like effect. And the reason isn't spending. It's that the Democrats in Congress and really the country aren't asking for these big changes that would prevent Republicans from, um, as Robin says, like taking political power in 2022 and 24 and then slamming the door shut behind them with gerrymandering, etc. And you know, the idea that we're going to fundamentally alter the relationship between capital and labor without having that kind of transformative political change just seems really unlikely. And Robin talks about the labor movement um, that really did have this effect and was the partner in this earlier era. And we just don't have a galvanized labor movement in the same way. Um, can we close this topic? Emily, I'll ask you to throw at this first with the weird split, or maybe not weird, the, the, the totally expected divide in sentiment over the economy. It is not simply that people are confused about the economy. It is that Democrats think the economy is better than Republicans think, even independent of their actual circumstances. And this, I suspect, is now a permanent feature of American life, which is that political sorting and partisanship has so pervaded everything that people are even unable to think clearly about their own economic circumstances uh, because they're it co they're colored by how they think about what's happening politically. I know, and I and I don't want to say this is a Republicans are 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 the ones guilty of it. I am sure that had you had you polled me during the Trump years and asked me how the economy was doing, I would have given a more negative answer than I probably would give today because of some aspect of of political sentiment. But what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that people think they are worse off or better off depending on who the president is? And does it maybe it doesn't matter? Well, we just recognize how much political polarization is affecting and coloring people's views about every issue. One thing that strikes me about this is that I feel like so many people outside of the sort of political intelligentsia bubble actually like don't want to think about politics very much, often are understandably tuning a lot of it out. And yet they still seem to have their views <laughs> colored by all of this. So it's like as if whatever they're catching, even if most of the time they're ignoring the whole thing, understandably, it still has this effect. I think it's a reminder not to take poll results too literally. I think we journalists do that a lot. And so I know most of your audience are not journalists. So I would say when, when you see us journalists um, telling you what poll results mean, you should have probably some skepticism. I mean, this is one example, right? When you say to people, how do you feel about the economy? You're actually, what they hear is some version of how do you feel about America? 
And another example of that is when you ask people why they voted the way they voted, we often suggest that the causal relationship goes from their answer to that question to who they voted for. But I actually think it often goes the other way, right? Imagine someone in Virginia who's watching a debate and who's like, hey, you know what? I kind of like Glenn Youngkin. Um, we've got a Democratic president. Youngkin seems more charismatic than McAuliffe. I'm going to vote for Youngkin. And then you go and you ask that person why she or he voted for Youngkin. And what they may think is, oh, you know what? Youngkin had a lot of education ads. I'm going to say education. It, it didn't necessarily mean they were looking at education and deciding Youngkin was their person because of it. And so just in general, whether it's on the economy or other stuff, don't take poll results literally most of the time. Good way to sneak that in when Dickerson isn't here. I know. He <laughs> yeah, can't he, fight was, back. he would have had your head. He was <laughs> Gotta land the punches when you can. Slate Plus members, you get so much for being a Slate Plus member. It's only $1 for your first month. You get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get unlimited reading on the Slate website. Uh, you never hit the paywall on the Slate website. Uh, and you get bonus episodes and bonus segments on shows like GabFest, Slow Burn, Amicus, The Culture GabFest, Hang Up and Listen. And we, of course, do bonus segments every week on this show, which we will talk about in one second. But go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. And our bonus segment today, we're going to talk about the newsletter golden age. We are in a, an amazing era of newsletters. And David Leonhardt, our guest today, our guest host, writes one of the most read newsletters in world history. So we're going to talk about what newsletters are good for and what they are not good for. And you can get that if you become a Slate Plus member by going, as I said, to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Also, in December, you can give the gift of Slate Plus to a friend or family member. And there's an easy link to do that in our episode notes. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. President Biden announced a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in China, which started in February. That means that no U.S. officials will be attending the Games in any official capacity, probably or even any unofficial capacity, though U.S. athletes will be going. This is a protest against a series of Chinese uh, misdeeds, the things the U.S. deplores, the Uyghur genocide and the crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong, the growing military threat to Taiwan, Tibet, islands in the South China Sea, you name it. It looks like there will probably be some other diplomatic boycotts. Australia, the UK seem to kind of do it. I couldn't really tell reading the article whether they've actually announced a boycott, maybe some other countries, but the games definitely will go on. So Emily, there seems to be a general consensus in both the Democratic and Republican parties that this is a reasonable move, that this Diplomatic boycott is a good way to protest the games, but doesn't harm the athletes who are going to, to why not do a full boycott? Well, it wasn't a total consensus. I mean, Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, said we should be taking a much harder line with China. If we were not sending our athletes to the games, it would seem like a tsunami. It just like come totally out of nowhere. I would be so taken aback by that. Now, maybe that's heartlessness on my part about these various human rights abuses in China. But I don't know, at a moment in which, like, the United States' role in the world is being questioned on a variety of fronts, in which there isn't an international consensus about 
how to deal with China's rising power, and then just the punishment to the athletes that that inflicts. I just don't think that was really on the table. And so this seems like one of these largely symbolic efforts to recognize that things aren't where the United States thinks they should be with China, but isn't really disruptive in the end. Does anybody actually care that the vice president of the United States is not at the snowboarding competition in some mountain range outside of Beijing. Does anyone actually care about that? No. Like his diplomatic boycott. I didn't even know that. I didn't honestly didn't even know that the, there was such a thing as a non diplomat as, as a diplomatic non boycott. I wasn't aware that they went. It's to one begin day with. of headlines, right? That's it. What headlines? What, have you tell me? You you ever well, saw? Well, I had to read a bunch of stories to prepare for this no, segment. But the, did they you even know? Did you even know that U.S. officials went to the games to begin with? I didn't no, know. I but thought you it was know, I hate the Olympics and pay no attention to it. I've already paid a great price with our listeners for admitting that. I love the Olympics. I spend way too much time watching them, and I so I was aware. There's always the shot of the vice president. <laughs> you know. Uh, snowboarding or figure skating or whatever. No, I don't think anyone cares. I think China would have cared a lot more in 2008 when it hosted the Summer Olympics right. and right. and wanted to use it and did really use it as a coming out party for its new global power. Now, I mean, Chinese officials are quite dismissive uh, of American criticisms of them. I was at a conference in Beijing two years ago and the Americans got up and said some mildly critical things and the Chinese just responded with, you know, verbal fire, you know, just really confrontational and dismissive. And I don't think China cares about this. We've ended up in this funny situation. There's a fascinating piece. I don't agree with everything in it, but but I recommend it. There's a fascinating piece in a recent foreign affairs by John Mearsheimer, in which he argues, I think really persuasively, that a succession of US presidents of both parties were um, how badly they handled the rise of China. And they imagined that the US could essentially help China rise and that China would not become um, a real threat to American power. Whereas every Everything in world history suggested that's exactly what would happen. And in fact, it has happened. So the US has now pivoted from being naive about China's rise to really trying to be confrontational to China, but it doesn't seem that effective right now. And so I think the next step for the US and this this diplomatic boycott, um, and I guess I try to avoid using the word boycott because it just confuses people, right? Like diplomats aren't going um, is an example of that. It's like a little bit of a temper tantrum, but it doesn't actually help check China. And I think what the US needs to figure out how to do is um, not just, you know, talk loudly, but do more of carry a big stick and work more with other countries in Asia that are also concerned about China's rise and focus a little bit less on the theatrics of criticizing China and a little more on actually the strategy and tactics of, of checking China's rise. But this is what GapFest listeners, those of you who heard Malcolm Turnbull with us a couple of weeks ago, this was what Malcolm was talking about, exactly that, that set of policies. I definitely, had I been in China policymaking over the last 40 years, definitely would have been one of these people like, give China everything, give them our intellectual property. They're just going to, it's going to be great. I would have been 100%. You really would have. And would have Iran. You would have picked China and Iran as like the partners for yes. that were going to just turn yes. into these benevolent humanitarian powers. Would have Not been exactly great. That. I'm but so that glad the, you weren't the, in control. <laughs> we, oh, we're in such a better shape now that I wasn't in control. Do you think there's any play for the the companies that advertise or broadcast the Olympics to do anything? Is it incumbent on NBC to run 
serious pieces about the Uyghur genocide on NBC News throughout the Olympics and and interview, uh, you know, uh, attractive young Hong Kong democracy activists, which will certainly irritate China, but will will highlight these issues. Or is, it, is NBC's job really just like get these show the sports, do the sports? That's their job. And and companies like Airbnb, which are huge, hugely partnered with the Olympics, do they have a responsibility, like, to make sure that no home of a, a Uyghur is is an Airbnb during during the Olympics or something like that? Hmm. I'm trying to decide if that last one would be good or bad for the Uyghurs. I absolutely wish the companies would have a social conscience about this and that NBC would use its platform to do some of this kind of public information internationally. Yes. I mean, we can't force them to do it. They're private companies. But it just seems like just showing up there and broadcasting the games, given the roles that companies are increasingly being asked to play in these social conflicts at home and abroad, like, yes. There's this interesting example uh, in Qatar, which is about to host the the World Cup. And the Danish national soccer team, which is going, I think, qualified for the World Cup, certainly if they do qualify, said essentially they won't do anything commercial. They won't promote it. They won't do anything to to celebrate the games. They're going to go and they're going to play. But the Danish Football Federation and the Danish team will not participate in the hoopla around it. And that's a like an interesting move uh, because it is it's, the Olympics are not simply the games. It's also the the kind of celebratory feeling around it. And if the the athletes and and the teams refuse to participate in the celebratory feeling, that is a that's like an interesting thing. And it's the same thing where Qatar it has good things about it, but it's had some abuses that the Danish team wanted to highlight. I think those things do matter. And I think, I mean, you imagine what if an athlete, you know, on the medal stand did something in solidarity with the Uyghur people? Um, that would be a big deal. I mean, it would would take tremendous courage, um, but that would be a big deal. And I do think China cares about this. And, and the way we know is China has put so much pressure on Hollywood. It's not only that they don't want Hollywood distributing content that they don't like about Xinjiang or about Hong Kong or about Taiwan in China. They've now made it clear that if Hollywood studios do this almost anywhere, China will punish them. And so you've really seen American, not American journalistic outfits for the most part, which have been, I I do think have handled this well, but you've seen Hollywood and entertainment outlets. And of course, NBC is, is sort of a mix between those two be really have almost no courage about it. And so remember, if you're of a certain age, as we all are, you grew up watching movies with Russian villains and they were often silly caricatures and you don't really see movies with Chinese villains, right? Even though China is the, the US main rival, you just see you sort of the villains in movies tend to be uh, from other countries like Arab countries that are US rivals or hostile to the US. And so I do think there is basically this massive form of of censorship that China has been very successful in imposing. And I do think it's incumbent on the corporate partners, not simply to to meekly accept that, but for NBC to cover these stories fulsomely and not to take their orders from the Chinese government, which is effectively what a whole bunch of these countries have done. 
It's been important that the Women's Tennis Association has pulled out of China until, you know, until unless and until they really are reassured about the fate of Peng Shui, the tennis star in China who made this Me Too sexual assault allegation against a powerful official. And, you know, contrast that to the NBA, which has been much more prone to kind of knuckle under to Chinese pressure because of all the money at stake in expanding its market. Those things matter. Yep. The I will say in closing here, I'm a huge Olympics person in general, but let's let's all face the fact, David Leonhardt, the Winter Olympics are ludicrous. <laughs> They're just ludicrous. It's a bunch of sports that are silly and that are only played by white people, basically. You have the biathlon, you have luge, you have bobsled, you have skeleton, which is sledding, like sledding. You have curling, which is basically housekeeping on ice. And there are only really two sports. The two sports are figure skating. Well, there are three sports at the Winter Olympics. Figure skating, totally legit. Love. Snowboarding and hockey. Hockey, you get better in the NHL. Snowboarding, you get better at the X Games. Figure skating. Essentially, they do an entire Olympics just so there's figure skating. David, you've left That's off curling. That's not really worth it. You've left off curling. I did not leave off curling. <laughs> curling, I and said, curling is housework on ice. Thing where you I'm, about to go to, I'm about to go do curling. I'm about to try curling. I'm going to, to uh, upper Minnesota with my college roommates, and we're going to spend a weekend doing dog sledding and curling. I'm so deeply maybe jealous. Maybe I'll be a curling, curling uh, convert. Oh, my God. It's going to be so cold. Curling has is just a fantastic strategic game to watch on TV if you have some time. Um, so let me I, I do that. actually, to, truthfully, I do watch curling sometimes when it's on. <laughs> it's really fascinating. It is. Uh, it's also it's it's a it's a it's a it's a mixed gender sport, right? Like they is they, that the thing where it looks like they're like mopping on the ice? Yes, like yeah. scrubbing it's sweeping. Board on ice. It's sweeping, sweeping, not mopping. Oops. Yeah, yeah, mopping. You'd create a whole different thing. You'd create if you mopped on ice, you create this layer of water. My bad. It'd be weird. Have you ever seen anyone mop ice? No, I guess not. I don't know. What do Zambonis do? That's a different thing. They, they sort do, of mop it and then it freezes. Zambonis mop ice, yes. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Ghislaine Maxwell was Jeffrey Epstein's one-time girlfriend, his boon companion, and according to prosecutors, his co-conspirator in his hideous, 
hideous acts of rape and sexual abuse. She is now on trial for abetting Epstein's crimes against girls whom he raped and abused and did all kinds of terrible things to. Practically, in plain sight, he did this. Epstein is, of course, dead by his own hand, and Maxwell stands trial kind of in his stead to face the justice that he never faced. So, Emily, there's all kinds of interesting things about this case, but I'm, I wonder if you could start by explaining what it is she is actually charged with, because I find this idea that, that grooming is a crime to be really interesting. Like the idea that you are guilty of something, not necessarily because you yourself have committed the sexual abuse, but you have made it possible for someone else to, to do it. Right. Well, the government has a bunch of formal criminal charges involving sex trafficking. So, you know, technically speaking, we're talking about a count of enticement of a minor to travel to engage in illegal sex acts. A lot of charges that have language like that or that directly talk about sex trafficking. I mean, I think we want the things that she did to be a crime because they were soliciting sex from very vulnerable young teenagers, either together or sometimes the allegations are Maxwell doing it herself. And that's incredibly dangerous, right? So to take a step back, it is Ghislaine Maxwell's extremely bad luck that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself in jail. Because if he was the main culprit, the government might have tried to flip her to testify against him. And maybe she would have gotten off entirely. She certainly would not be facing 70 years maximum sentence right now. That said, if she did the things that are alleged, I mean, I think she should go to prison. She absolutely um, was a key player in the abuse that these girls suffered. And, you know, I also think there's something sort of, it's a relief to see someone who's so tied into powerful figures around the world, you know, not to say that these people were abusive themselves, but Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton and Donald Trump and whoever else, like, she is in a picture with every single big celebrity. She was at the Clintons, at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. And so seeing someone really powerful like this, you know, seeing the courts try to hold her responsible for the part that she played seems important to me. And yeah, I guess I just feel like she is nearly as culpable. Plus, if you if the allegations are correct, she was either present or nearly present, but sometimes actually present and participating in some of the abuse. I agree with everything you just said, although there is something there's something uh, unsatisfying with the idea that the people who play the price pay the price of this crime which will be Maxwell and the victims who have to testify, the victims who were victimized, uh, are all women. Well, and, I mean, Jeffrey Epstein men, is dead. They, like, he didn't pay no price, right? Like, I don't like this idea that he somehow, like, right. escaped okay. paying a price. He's not alive anymore. Yes, that's true. But he's dead. I mean, but he the, chose but, but that the people, end, the but the people still. who were consorting with Epstein, who undoubtedly had some kind of knowledge and possible participation— they're walking around uh, being heirs to the throne of England and and representing people in legal cases and, you know, running the world's largest uh, foundation and things like that. But we don't have evidence that they actually committed crime. So that's like, of course, innocence. Of course. Yeah. of course. To me, the details of this case are so important. When you when I first heard about it, I thought, 
She's clearly not a sympathetic figure at all. But I thought, is this a, a classic example of American overcriminalization? I mean, we put so many more people in jail than any other country in the world, and being sleazy or immoral is not actually a crime. But then you read the details of the case, and it's just what Emily said. These sure seem like crimes, right? Crimes, not just um, being around a bad person, not just um, how the United States likes to criminalize everything. I mean, this is just ghastly, horrible stuff. How much of this, what they were able to get away with for so long, do you think, David, was this just the impunity of the rich? I mean, it's incredible how public it all was when you go back and look that everyone said, oh, you know, I mean, Donald Trump said, oh, he, he, he really likes those, those young girls. And everyone knew that Epstein was consorting. He was a convicted criminal, sex criminal. He had it on his record, and yet people were consorting with him. And yet it went on and on and on. Is that just because he was rich and rich people can do whatever the hell they want? That was probably necessary, even if it wasn't sufficient. Um, had he pled guilty, Emily, or he'd been yes. convicted? He had pled yes. guilty to a crime, and yet he was still put on these boards. And 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 it's really it's it's really terrible in retrospect. And I and I think that I mean, there's all this debate right now about whether different movements from the political left are going too far in different ways. And and I'm of the view that sometimes they are going too far. But I think this is an example of something that is really important and necessary that we've seen in recent years, which is there needs to be much less tolerance in public life for truly, truly odious behavior. And we've now had a few examples. Bill Cosby's another one in which we just knew something was terrible for years and a significant number of people decided to look the other way because of some combination of fame and wealth and self-interest. Um, and they shouldn't be allowed to just kind of keep doing what they're doing. I just want to put a point on that. Um, in 1996, Maria Farmer came forward to prosecutors with serious allegations against Epstein involving her younger sister, Annie Farmer, and they were essentially ignored. And then in 2008, there is this fateful plea deal for Epstein where the federal government agrees to effectively a secret consent agreement. It's Alex Acosta, who then became the labor secretary for former President Trump. And he claimed that he did this because the state prosecutors didn't want to move forward and somehow his hands were tied, which is like the most bogus claim of federal prosecutorial power like I've ever heard in my life because everybody knows the feds can come in with bigger artillery and address issues like this. And the fact that that consent agreement was kept secret from victims for a really long time meant that it was left to Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald to do all the really important reporting to bring this story out in the open. And that is just a tremendous failure of prosecution and justice and government. And it really helps explain why Epstein, who was a registered sex offender, was able to kind of parade around in all these fancy settings. Emily, as a legal matter, her lawyers are going after the victims, pointing out their erratic lives, the problems, inconsistencies in their story, their drug use. I understand the responsibility of Maxwell to mount the most aggressive defense she can mount. She's facing a lifetime in prison. But there's something sick about the defense lawyers going after these women who were then girls at the time uh, in the way that they are choosing to go after them. I'm not sure what other card the defense has to play because you have to try to undermine the credibility of these witnesses. And this is probably the evidence that seems relevant. It is really gross to watch. And it's not fair to the individual women on the stand who have to pay this price. Um, 
It's not. There's just, it's one of those, uh, there's a way in which the individual paying the price just seems like it shouldn't be necessary for society, um, for the state, for the people to have um, a just outcome here. And yet, that's how it works. I mean, one piece of good news is that this tactic has not been working lately in high profile trials. It didn't work um, at Cosby's trial. It didn't work at the Harvey Weinstein's trial. And if it doesn't work here either, maybe we're going to see it abate. Although, again, I'm not exactly sure what else the defense could be doing here. It also didn't work at the Ahmed Arbery trial, which is obviously That's, a very different trial, but it is an example of, of that. That's a Can, really good point. Emily, one other question, which I feel like I've asked you on this show maybe a hundred times. All these crimes or alleged crimes took place a long time ago. What happened to statutes of limitations? Have statutes of limitations just vanished? There is no statute of limitation for federal charges of sex trafficking. So what do you think about that? I mean, on the one hand, the reason we have statutes of limitation is protect people from being convicted when evidence is really stale and old and we're not really sure they did it. On the other hand, sex trafficking is terribly serious. And really, it's up to juries to decide whether the evidence is solid enough to convict someone. So um, anyway, those well, but are that's, the... But that argument is true for any crime. Why isn't yeah, that true? It Every is. crime. I mean, like what you should say, you know... Fraud is very serious and it's like an mm-hmm. offense against nature. You know, I mean, any kind of any kind of a, an assault you commit against somebody that isn't a sex assault is very serious. I don't I, if you have statutes, there statutes of limitations exist for a purpose. And I don't understand why we pick and choose when they are when they're enforced. Well, murder is never subject to them, right? And so the idea there is that you take someone's life, you should always be held responsible for it. I mean, I can see an argument for treating sex trafficking and, you know, rape or serious sexual assault along the same lines um, because it both is a serious personal harm to an individual, which is different from a crime like fraud, and also because often people take a long time to come forward, right? So you have this problem of shame. You have the way in which our social mores about sex crimes have changed. It's become somewhat a little bit easier for people to come forward. And so given all the stories we have of child and minor teenagers being sexually abused and not being able to divulge those secrets earlier, I feel like I'm okay with this one. I guess I... I where I get uneasy is when I think back to the moral panic over the alleged abuse of very young children and those the satanic abuse panic of the 80s and 90s and yeah, where that went awry. Right. I mean, that was that was terrible. And those, You're and, right. And I, those those that's fair. Those cases went awry because um, mostly of this issue of repressed memory, this notion that people could completely and utterly never speak of someone, forget all about it, and then have those memories triggered much later. And it turned out that that was not really a psychological phenomenon, certainly not one that courts should rely on. This is a different setting, yes, though. I, t- I just want to acknowledge, I'm not, I think the, the crimes that are being accused here, I mean, these were women or girls who are old enough to absolutely have strong memories of it there's no reason to think the pattern is clear i'm i'm just saying that that as a kind of philosophical legal matter i just want to make sure that we that we don't in our on our desire to punish monsters who deserve to be punished like make mistakes which lead to things like the what happened with the with the the sex abuse panic of the 80s 
Totally fair. And I also will note that there's some important corroborating evidence in this trial of, you know, phone messages scribbled down and other witnesses coming in to corroborate elements of the victim's testimony. And I will also say, you know, 70 years in prison would be an effective life sentence for Maxwell. And people are going to have different ideas about whether that is the right punishment for her. To me, it seems like a very long time. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you, Emily Bathlon, are having a joyful evening drink with a loved one. What are you going to be chattering about with them? Oh, man. I am really worried about two Supreme Court cases argued this week. The first one involves my most hated law ever, um, the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act, which just made it much harder for people to bring innocence claims and other claims in federal court after they were convicted and lost their state appeals. And this is a case that is about two men who are in prison, they argue, because they had double bad lawyers. They had ineffective assistance at trial and then later on as well in a way that made it impossible for them to bring important claims. One is an innocence claim and the other is an intellectual disability claim. The case is called Shin versus Ramirez and Jones. It wasn't really clear what the outcome was going to be from argument, so I really hope the court doesn't make this law even worse in terms of barring people from getting legitimate claims into court. And I also note that Congress could change the statute. This is not a case of the Supreme Court having the final say. It has nothing to do with the Constitution, or actually it does, but EDPA, this law that I don't like, has nothing to do with the Constitution. And the second case has a lot to do with um, freedom of religion in the Constitution and the possibility that the Supreme Court, in a case called Carson versus Macon, may kind of turn on its head my own understanding of state funding for religion. So this is a case about the state of Maine. Maine has lots of rural school districts. Some of them don't have their own secondary schools. And so then parents get to effectively pick where to send their kid to school, except the state says, we want you to provide an ecumenical, religiously neutral education. And so we're not going to pay for deeply sectarian schools. The plaintiffs in this case wanted to send their kids to Christian schools. One of those Christian schools expels kids who say they're LGBT, refuses to hire LGBTQ teachers, and also has a ninth grade curriculum in which you get taught to refute Islam with the word of God. And so the notion that you would have a state paying for that kind of education just does not line up with my own understanding of Supreme Court interpretation of freedom of religion. And yet it really seemed like there were five or probably six votes for that outcome in this case. And the implications are huge. I mean, any state that has tuition assistance, a voucher program that allows parents to choose to pay for private education could be now subject to also paying for parochial schools with that public money. It was striking during early argument to hear some of the 
conservative justices effectively say, like, well, if you're teaching critical race theory in school, which is itself like a really fraught notion whether that's even happening exactly, but isn't that a kind of religious belief? In other words, totally blurring the line between uh, any traditional <laughs> definition of religion and kind of, you know, ideology. So anyway, it was quite an interesting oral argument. The case is Carson versus Macon. It will probably come down in June. David Leonhart, what is your chatter? My chatter is a seasonal chatter. Um, so one of my favorite December traditions is to listen to the Nutcracker Suite by Duke Ellington. The original is obviously by Tchaikovsky, but Ellington's great collaborator, Billy Strayhorn, who's a songwriter, got bored in the 50s of writing classic swing tunes for Ellington. So he decided to basically give himself a really hard challenge, which was to redo Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite for big band jazz. And he and Ellington did it together. And it's just an absolutely marvelous piece uh, of music. It very much fits with this time of year. You can find it on Spotify. There are some nice older versions. There's also a newer version, a live version um, by the Eric Felton Jazz Orchestra. And I actually heard that live version performed uh, here in Washington, D.C. And so if you're cooking or just sitting around with your family, I highly recommend putting on Ellington's Nutcracker Suite. And then you can kind of go read the backstory about it. I'm sort of an evangelist for it. Oh, my God. I love that. Thank you. That's it's very cocktail-y. That is, it feels like that you is yes, so much listen better. without having a cocktail. That's right. Put it on <laughs> while having cocktails um, uh, and talking about the Supreme Court. My chatter. First, uh, I want to do just a, a self-interested one, which is that CityCast is expanding big time our network of local podcasts and newsletters. And we just listed three really nice jobs, all of them working closely with me. We're going to hire an editor-in-chief for our newsletters. We're hiring a growth marketing manager, someone who's going to help us get new listeners for CityCast podcasts and readers for our newsletters. And we're hiring a head of recruiting, someone to help us find great people, producers and writers and hosts in cities across the U.S. and bring them into CityCast and get them started successfully at CityCast. So if you're at all interested or you know someone who might be interested in any of these jobs, go to citycast.fm slash jobs. That's citycast.fm slash jobs. My other chatter is about a TV show that I've been watching, which is so nice. If you've ever thought to yourself, I, what I really want in the world is a TV show that is a cross between girls and Ted Lasso. Like, what about that? Could there be a TV show that's a cross between girls and Ted Lasso? There could be. It's called The Sex Lives of College Girls. It's Mindy Kaling's new show. It's on HBO Max. It is about four young women who are uh, first years at, at a Northeastern liberal arts college, and they're grappling with sex and adulthood and school. And it's just wonderful. It's funny, it's sweet, it's slapstick, but it's also very thoughtful. And it has it has a kind of that kind of earnestness, that kind earnestness that Ted Lasso does so well. Uh, it's it's great. Can't recommend it enough. Sex Lives of College Girls. Listeners, you keep sending us good chatters. You tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest, and you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And this week's listener chatter comes from Andrew Lacko. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew in Seattle. I wanted to share an audiobook by Malcolm Gladwell called Miracle and Wonder Conversations with Paul Simon. It's part interview, it's part concert, it's part podcast. Paul plays some old songs and he walks through the wildly diverse set of influences and experiences that he pulled from to create his own uh, unique sound. 
really it's just one amazing storyteller interviewed by another amazing storyteller and i hope everyone enjoys it as much as i did i had a walk with our old colleague jacob weisberg emily this week and his his company he and malcolm have this company pushkin which created this book and jacob was actually telling me about this book and how how proud he was of it it sounds from andrew like it's amazing so congratulations to all of them that is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Audio. And Leisha Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there or email us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and the sublime David Leonhardt, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, if you are a Slate Plus listener, it's highly likely, highly likely, I would say it's almost prohibitively likely that you're also a subscriber to or a recipient of David Leonhardt's newsletter for the New York Times. David, we're going to talk about newsletters, but first of all, tell us about your newsletter, what it is, and how long you've been doing it. I work on a newsletter called The Morning. A team of about eight of us at the New York Times work on it. It goes out uh, every morning at 6.30 a.m. usually, sometimes a little earlier, uh, Eastern time. It's a little miniature version of a newspaper. I almost always have an opening, not necessarily about the biggest story over the previous 24 hours, but about something important going on. And then we run through all the big news of the day. We have a longer item about something from culture often written by my colleague, Sanam Yar. And then we um, give you a bunch of links of other stuff you can go see in the culture. It's basically an attempt to distill the New York Times into an email. What I love about this newsletter is that it has a voice. It picks something slightly off the beaten track, or it has a kind of analysis of something that is right in the news. And you're not sure which it's going to be. Like sometimes it's, you know, about wrongful convictions and sometimes it's COVID analysis, but it delivers on its promises. And often it has some really good data visualization in it, which is partly because David Leonhardt is the founder of The Upshot at the New York Times and cares a lot about data, as he said earlier, as you said earlier. And it's just really satisfying. What do you think that newsletters are good at, David? I assume you have been looking at them a lot because you write one um, and you presumably have followed the, this efflorescence of, of substackism uh, and you, maybe you read 100 a day or maybe you read none, but I'm sure you've thought about it. What are they good at? I do read a bunch. I really do think of it as being connected to the role that print publications have played. They help aggregate and curate um, and really allow you to triage your life so that if you really. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.